Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. And today I'm here with Kyle Harper, professor of classics and letters at the University of Oklahoma and winner of the AAR Book Award in Historical Studies. Today he's here to speak to us about this great book, From Shame to Sin, The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in uh, Late Antiquity, which was published with Harvard University Press in 2013. Congratulations and thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, Christian. Honored to, honored to have this chance. Now, your book, a good place to start would probably be the title, From Shame to Sin, because it drops us right into the transformation that you examined. So uh, what, are you, what are you trying to tell us with your title, and uh, what aren't you doing? Well, that's a, it's a great question, and the, the title really is special to me in, insofar as, in, in some ways, I thought of the title... Uh, before I thought of the book, uh, or at least when I when I had that phrase, it helped crystallize uh, an argument in my mind uh, that helped me think about the the big picture of historical transformation, and helped me think about the way that I might try and tell a story about changing ideas, but also about changing interfaces between ideas and the world. And that's one of the really consequential features of late antiquity as a historical period is that it's not just a, an age of great um, religious and intellectual ferment uh, in the history of ideas, but it's also a period of time of, of great upheaval and great transformation in the way that society and religion um, met one another. And so uh, from shame to sin, captures, I hope, not just the way that one set of ideas replaced another, but the way that those ideas um, met the world really was, was changed at the same time. Now, part of this is this idea of the social logic of late antiquity is, is changing rather than, than, this is not just a linguistic argument. So can you tell us how a cosmological argument replace the the idea of the city or the local as the framework for morality of, of course and that's the the central thesis of the book is that around this change of ideas hangs uh, a very profound change in the logic of sexual morality and the way that society could or could not provide the entire foundation of a logic of sexual morality and so in the term shame which there is a linguistic or philological um, piece of the argument, but really these, these terms are, are big metaphors for an entire style of thinking. And shame, which I use as a, as a really metonym for the way that pre-Christian cultures, uh, for the most part, conceived of the, the very nature of sexual morality itself uh, as something that is totally embedded within the social order. And so the, the varied and complex dictates of sexual ethics ultimately are embedded in, in a social world. Um, and so we can call that the city. Um, and by sin, I am trying to invoke uh, a style of thinking about what sexual morality is that has cosmic, uh, religious, theological dimensions that were um, very difficult to find in the earlier period. And so um, 
one of the themes that I try to use throughout the book is literature. And you can think about the kind of stories that are being told that are in some, in some sense representative of pre-Christian culture in the first centuries of this era. And I think some, some of the most profound and certainly some of the most interesting stories are the, the pagan romances. And if you think for a minute about a feature of those stories that you might not notice uh, were it not for the Christian tradition, the fact that these stories have no outside. Um, they're entirely self-contained in the physical, material world that the protagonists operate in. And so their entire lives, their moral lives, are encapsulated within the world and are fully part of the world. And I try to follow the way that Christians adapt and very intentionally transform these stories. And uh, by the end of the period, period that I'm interested in, you have stories where um, human beings are transient within this world. There's, as it were, another dimension. There's a transcendent uh, dimension to human sexual ethics. And uh, that's what I mean by the, the word and the figure of sin, is that human beings are really not uh, exclusively responsible to this world, to the city, to their society. But instead, they have um, certain kinds of transcendent moral commitments that that have no fundamental or, or complete um, bond to this material world. So there's an outside, uh, and that's the, the, the realm of the soul, the realm of the cosmos, and of God. When you set up the book, you, you tell us that sexual experiences were, were visible and ubiquitous, and they, they shaped social dynamics in the Greco-Roman culture. So for, for those of us who are not as familiar with this period, um, how would you describe sexual life in the, the heyday of the Roman period? That's a hard question. Varied, violent, frank, um, and social. The, the world of the, the early Roman Empire is a, a vibrant, uh, multicultural um, world uh, that we know from a huge variety of, of literary, archaeological, material, documentary evidence. And we can reconstruct um, some parts of it, including at least some very uh, broad, plausible parameters for, for instance, its demographic structure. And we know that it was a world where life expectancy at birth was, was very short, as you would expect in a pre-modern society. And that uh, dictate alone um, uh, really fundamentally shaped the way people thought about themselves, their privacy, their body, uh, the claims of the family and society uh, upon themselves. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a society of high mortality and is fundamentally shaped by that. It's a, it's a vibrant um, polytheistic or pagan society uh, and uh, it's a society of frank sensuality where um, what we would call the facts of life were um, surrounded people and their visual representation surrounded people in ways that um, would be alien to, to later sensibilities. And there's, there's a kind of a story there that, um, that is trying to address this old and really fundamental question of, of um, were, was there a kind of pagan freedom with the body? And um, I answer that question by saying yes and no. It depended very much 
much who you were, um, what your status was, what your gender was, what part of your life you were in, and what kinds of claims others, including society and, and the family, could make upon you and your body and its sexual potential. Um, but at the same time, there, there wasn't a total freedom, but there was a kind of frankness. Um, and Eros, the, the experience of sexual life, had uh, a really fundamental, fundamentally positive valence in this world. And it was something that was celebrated. It was something that was natural, something that was considered um, part of nature and that made us part of nature. Uh, and in many ways, those are things that are at the very least changed and, and I think in many cases fundamentally transformed uh, in the centuries of the later Roman Empire. One other thing that you bring into the conversation, which seems like others do not pay as close attention to, is uh, the role of slavery and prostitution in the sexual activities of the Roman world. Can you, can you describe how these fit in there? Sure. And on a personal note, uh, this, this book really um, came very quickly after I wrote a book on slavery because there's a little piece of the argument that was already there in my work on slavery. And there's a direct line from, from the book on slavery to this book on sexual morality. In, uh, and I think that in some sense, it, it's the fact that my eyes were, were trained to see um, people who are often invisible um, uh, led me to, to realize that in some ways, people without honor um, were central to the structure, to the experience, to the, to the texture of sexual morality in the ancient world. And, um, and so I think that background is important. Um, but I think it's very difficult for us to understand what it was like to be an inhabitant of a Mediterranean city under the Roman Empire without realizing that um, a tenth to a, a fifth of the, the population of one of those towns would have been made up of persons who were completely unfree. And in the ancient world, the status of slavery entailed a total lack of access to, to formal recognition of honor. And this was a society where um, the recognition of personal honor um, meant certain kinds of powers and certain kinds of entitlements, um, certain kinds of um, entitlements to protection and to privacy. Uh, that that were simply so absent in such a large part of the population that I would argue it shaped the entire structure and experience within this society, not just for those who were who were unfree, but in a in a very profound sense um, for everyone, not even just masters, but um, for common people whose identity was powerfully differentiated from those who were held as the property of other people. Now, in the development of Christian sexual norms, you, you tell us there's an assault on extramarital sexual activity. So where were same-sex love and extramarital sex placed in the, the classification of sexual behaviors? Sure. And um, here is where the ancient world's sexual morality um, was far more profoundly shaped by the different social roles that men and women had then would be Christian sexual morality, which is in various ways shaped, of course, by differentiated gender roles, but um, radically less sharply than it was in the pre-Christian world. And so 
Um, the, the Greeks and Romans uh, have no dissent over the fact that respectable women, um, daughters and, and then wives, um, could not legitimately experience sex outside of marriage. And so for honorable women, sexuality, legitimate sexual experience was restricted to the marriage relationship. Um, but males experience an entirely different logic. Um, uh, adultery to us, to our ears in English, means um, the violation of, of a marriage bond. But in the ancient world, adultery, adulterium, moikia in Greek, means the violation of a married woman. Um, and, and, and so just trying to, to get inside those cultural terms mentally, um, and, and often it's right at the level of language, can help open up for us this entirely different logic, this entirely different um, system of thinking about what constitutes morality uh, that existed in the pre-Christian period. So um, for the, for the pre-Christian Greek and Romans, um, the, the question of extramarital sex for males and females was entirely different. And uh, agent marriage, I think, um, can, can bring this home to us in, in a way that's um, somewhat comprehensible. Uh, girls in the ancient Mediterranean world married relatively early. I mean, we think um, sometime in their mid, maybe mid to late teens, um, whereas men tended to marry later, um, anywhere from their um, early 20s, but more often uh, in their mid-20s to late 20s. And so um, males had a vastly longer time uh, of sexual maturity outside of the marriage relationship. And it was considered um, so normal for men to experience sexual life uh, during these extramarital phases of their life cycle um, that it's, it's very difficult for us even to, to imagine quite how normative it was. And uh, you see a strong reaction to this, both among Jews and Christians. It's there uh, very, um, very clearly in Philo of Alexandria, the, the first century Jewish uh, philosopher who very clearly observes the, the habits and mores of the society around him at Alexandria and calls attention to the fact that the acceptance of premarital sexual experience for males, um, while it was totally normal for um, non-Jewish populations, uh, was, was not as accepted, uh, certainly not in the same ways, within the Jewish population. And so the Christians inherit um, a, a certain sensibility about um, the legitimacy of married sexuality. Um, but at the same time, I think that um, the early Christian uh, morality uh, departs very strongly um, from the Jewish traditions, both in the, the more rabbinic and in the more Hellenistic uh, senses. And um, early Christian sexual morality is really sui generis. It's its own thing. There, it draws from some of the um, language and, and sensibilities of Judaism. It draws in, in subtle ways um, from Greek and Roman ideas, norms, even um, Greek philosophies, but it's, I think, radically its own thing. Um, and it comes to, uh, to the Orthodox Christians come to the um, settlement that in some sense virginity is the highest ideal, um, but that marriage is allowed. Uh, and the, the, of course, 
crucial passages uh, for this ideology, for this settlement, uh, for this compromise are found in the first letter to the Corinthians of Paul, which is, um, I think, always the, the central text for Orthodox Christian sexual morality. And it is decisive in allowing um, legitimate space for married sexuality, but doing so on pretty compromised, um, pretty limited terms in which it's, it's um, clear that virginity is the highest ideal, um, but married sexuality is permissible, uh, and extramarital sexual experience is impermissible. And so that, that, um, that, the outlines of that compromise um, are worked and reworked at different periods of early Christian history, but, but the outlines are there um, from from the time that Paul writes the, the first letter to the Corinthians. Not everyone agrees with them by any means in his own day um, or really across the entire history of the early church, but they are the center of gravity and they do manage, those norms manage to prevail as the basic orthodoxy in early Christianity. Another key argument you make in the book is that sex was integral to the development of the concept of, of free will. How so? How do how do we get there? Well, a couple of uh, a couple of um, elements of the background are important here. One is that discussion, thinking about what it meant to have free will, attained a kind of urgency in both philosophical and popular culture during the early centuries. And uh, I think this is something that that still needs further exploration and emphasis. Um, is the fact that thinking about fate and thinking about destiny and thinking about determination and free will um, occupied a place in the high philosophical literature, the very technical uh, debates between Epicureans and Stoics about what it meant to have volition, to have free will, become for some reason more pressing than they had been ever before. And I think it's a related fact that uh, this is part of the, the popular uh, culture of the time, that it's in the, the literature, it's in the romances, it's in the um, magical texts, it's in anywhere you look, you find people thinking, people worrying about what it means uh, to have fate, to have fortune, uh, and at the same time to have freedom, to have free will. So it's, it's in the air. And uh, in a world where this is in the atmosphere, uh, the Christians begin to develop some really unprecedentedly radical answers to some very old questions and insist in terms that were beyond anything that anyone before had insisted upon that every individual is completely free and people have a kind of total moral autonomy uh, that allows them to make decisions, decisive decisions about good and evil. And this is deeply bound up with they're thinking about sexual morality. They usually revert instantly uh, to the domain of, of sexual behavior to think about what it means to have free will. Uh, and I think it's part, at the same time, very much of what we were talking about just a moment ago, the way that the Christians imagine a world that has other dimensions, that has um, where, where the human soul is transcendent. And we might be deeply bound physically in various ways in this world, but our will exists in this other way, um, independent from this world, and 
it, it is what we will be judged upon. Uh, and clearly the idea of, of a cosmic divine judgment um, shapes very powerfully the Christian idea that people have moral responsibility and people have free will. Now, as these sexual norms get socialized, you tell us that preaching and, and public law play a large part in, in shaping how they're implemented within social life. Could you describe what's going on here as a type of Christianization is happening to sexual norms? Sure. I, I stake out a fairly strong and, uh, I think, somewhat controversial position that what we observe in the centuries of late antiquity isn't uh, marginal. It's not the triumph of um, a sexual ideology that was easily accommodated within traditional social norms and uh, that it wasn't the triumph of a, a small minority um, that, that sort of just changed the, the decoration. But instead somehow really changed the substance of what I would call public norms. And at the same time, the, the Christian church had what I would call very limited and imperfect instruments at its disposal, um, such as the ability to, to preach. It had a, a, a soapbox uh, in the towns and villages across the ancient Mediterranean. And we can easily imagine all the reasons why um, that's... Um, likely not to have radically changed behavior overnight. Um, but what I'm trying to argue is that um, the kind of shared moral assumptions uh, of the public order really were transformed by the triumph of institutional Christianity. And I try to trace this transformation in one domain, the, the law, public law, because I think it lets us see the the gradual but very real um, progress of the church in reshaping um, the terms of, of public norms. You finish up the book looking at romance literature and uh, the image of female chastity, which I think is really interesting and I like the way you use these materials. How do, how do these images reflect the cultural shift from, from shame to sin, so to speak? Well, great, great question. And in a, in a book that I think is trying very hard to, to remain grounded in, um, in what's real, what's material, what's social, um, the nature of power relationships, I end up um, spending the last chapter on imaginative literature. But I think that, that I can reconcile that because these stories occupy such an important uh, and meaningful place in the way that people could, could think about the relationship between sexual morality, the individual, and society. And so I think that imaginative literature um, it offers us a kind of privileged window onto the profound transformation of public moralities. And uh, these are great stories. That's part of it. And um, they're, they're fun to read and fun to work with. Uh, and they're very helpful in that female chastity is not just sort of a symbol. It is the symbol of symbols. And so it's a kind of master key that you can use to, to unlock uh, a transformation in the very logic of sexual morality. 
and uh, female sexual morality, female chastity, had a kind of powerful symbolic charge uh, that, that made it central to the way that um, ancient men and women might have imagined the place of, of their own sexual lives in the moral order. Now, in, in thinking about your book, either in its conclusions or in its methodologies, uh, how do you imagine that others in the study of religion might benefit from your work? Well, um, if, they, if they do, I think it might be in the way that um, we, I would hope it would encourage us to um, think of ideas as, as very powerful, but um, also very grounded in the real world. And um, I think the challenge is, is to treat um, religious ideas as things that have um, really powerful consequences in the way they meet people. Uh, as they live their lives, uh, as they experience um, the realities of, of lived life, whether it's the way that privacy is organized in a household or the way that um, a society differentiates people of, of different statuses, um, whether it's the way that uh, a lawmaker might begin to conceive of um, the rules that a society ought to obey. Um, in, in all of these very real things, um, we can trace... Uh, ideas that aren't just um, for armchair philosophers, um, aren't just for prophets and preachers, but uh, are ideas that intersect the, the real world in powerful and often very unexpected ways. Well, Kyle, thanks for your time and congratulations on this great book. Thank you, Christian. I appreciate the interview and uh, the, the, the very insightful reading of the book. <laughs>